Hello, my name is Ron Anderson. I'm a professor of finance here at the London School of Economics, and it's my great pleasure to introduce our speakers for this uh, wrap-up session um, at this delightful conference. I'm replacing Charles Goodhart. I'm disappointed that Charles, my colleague Charles Goodhart, is unable to uh, to chair this session because he's eminently more qualified than I am to, to do so. Um, but it's my great pleasure to introduce our keynote speaker, who is Richard Fisher, president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas. Um, and Mr. Fisher has had a, a distinguished career in public service and in the private sector in a variety of areas before becoming uh, the president of the Reserve Bank of Dallas. Um, he had started out his career in banking um, and uh, then moved into fund management, where he had his own company. Um, he has been a, uh, a trade representative of the United States with a rank of ambassador between 1997 and 2001. And he's also been the uh, vice chairman of the uh, strategic consulting firm Kissinger McClarty. And so this is an extremely uh, varied experience. He's uh, he was a uh, a visiting he was a student at uh, Oxford about the same time that I came to uh, from the United States to study uh, here also in Europe for a short stay. Um, now, uh, Mr. Fisher, during his tenure at uh, the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas, has participated in the. Uh, Monetary Open Markets Committee in the United States, um, and there has been uh, at the heart of the debate about uh, how to and whether to introduce um, uh, unconventional monetary policy, and and for the subject today, how to communicate this um, to the outside world. And so I'm delighted to uh, introduce uh, uh, Richard Fisher to speak out on this subject. Thank you very much. Well, I was very impressed to hear the Chancellor, or excuse me, the Provost, speak of Janet Yellen and Mervyn King and the distinguished people that began their academic careers here, as he put it. My exposure to LSE was a little bit different. As Ron just said, I went to Oxford. Um, I had graduated from Harvard in 1971, came straight here, and I came to LSE frequently because we missed the demonstrations that we used to have, and there were none at Oxford. So the demos were here. This is much more entertaining. The Oxford Union didn't quite do it for us. And I will tell you that uh, my wife, who was a Wellesley graduate, had, that's where we met at Oxford, and we came here to engage in political activity, occupy, occupy the chancellor's office, for example, because um, it was great fun. Uh, when I told her that I'd be a keynote speaker at the LSE, and I'd be wearing a suit rather than the way I would dress before. And I'd, people would listen carefully to what I was going to say, hopefully. Um, I asked her if, and this is literally the conversation, Nancy, in your wildest dreams, did you ever think um, that I would be a keynote speaker at LSE? You know what her answer was? Richard, we've been married 40 years. You do not appear in my wildest dreams. <laughs> Great, humbling experience. (laughs) 
So the topic is forward guidance. It is a sub. <laughs> it is the subject du jour of central bankers. We've seen it popularized by the Bank of England, and of course, uh, on my side of the pond, by the Federal Reserve. And we are embarking on this after having run a very hard course, a strong course of quantitative easing. I thought Governor Kuroda, a dear friend of mine and a former trade colleague of mine on his many, many, many things he did in his distinguished career, covered much of it, and I think, I think also Ron's questions were quite good. Um, but I do want to address the subject. I think it's timely. By the way, the February issue of The Economist described forward guidance as, quote, the latest monetary fad. And the Financial Times' Claire Jones, uh, in a blog of March 9th, I believe it was, did exactly the same thing. Now, a philologist, a study of words, would consider this a most interesting description. The Oxford English Dictionary traces the word fad back to the sermons of the second bishop of Manchester, James Fraser, and thence to Trollope's Chronicles of Barset. And here's how it defines a fad. Quote, a crotchety rule of action, a peculiar notion as to the right way of doing something, a pet project, especially of social or political reform, to which exaggerated importance is attributed. In a wider sense, a crotchet hobby craze, perhaps most aptly, by the way, given that I serve on the Federal Open Market Committee, chaired for the first time in its history by a woman, Janet Yellen. The OED cites Trollope's original use in this following sentence, quote, she may take up another fad now, end of quote. So is forward guidance a crotchet? By the way, further defined by the OED as a fanciful device to which exaggerated importance is attributed. Have we at the Open Market Committee just taken up another fad, or is this a real lasting phenomenon? And I just want to address that in a short manner today and then open myself up to your questions. Uh, in essence, what we have done is we have exhausted the efficacy of our quantitative easing. And again, I won't compare myself to the Bank of Japan or our body to the Bank of Japan nor to any other central bank. We are all at different stages of this exercise. But we have added massively to our balance sheet. You all know that it exceeds $4 trillion uh, U.S. dollars. Previous to the crisis, we were slightly under $900 billion. And the way this has manifested itself is that we've seen a huge buildup in the reserves of the depository institutions of the United States. Only 30% of the financial assets in our country are in the hands of depository institutions. And they have accumulated on our balance sheet and in their own reserves and their own balance sheets uh, or deposited in terms of excess reserves for which we pay 25 basis points per annum uh, at the 12 Federal Reserve banks, including mine, a total of $2.75 trillion. That's up from $64 billion as the norm before the crisis. So that's been a huge multiple of accumulation. And therefore, we have a monetary base which is stout and rich and full and deep. And the issue really is now the next phase of transforming from that to anchoring the base interest rate. Uh, I mentioned the buildup in reserves. 
because clearly we've yet to see it activated or see velocity pick up such that it transfers itself into the job creation that we as a, uniquely in a central banking world having a dual mandate are responsible for assisting. Not only must we maintain price stability and move towards the 2% target that was mentioned by Governor Kuroda, but we also have the responsibility to conduct monetary policy in a way that engenders full employment over the intermediate term. So this is, really is the issue for us presently. And uh, it, we had lunch uh, today uh, at the Waldorf Hotel, and it's just convenient to me that in 1926, Winston Churchill spoke in the room in which we had lunch today. And here's what he said. In finance, everything that is agreeable is unsound, and everything that is sound is disagreeable. It appears to me that the reaction to the statement we issued two days ago and the summary provided by our chairperson, Janet Yellen, uh, of course, was less anxious than that which we engendered a year ago in the spring when we first voiced this transition and the possibility of it existing. But nonetheless, I understand why it would be considered disagreeable, even if it is sound, by some market operators. And on this, I pulled no punches. It's my firm belief that we have made the life of money market operators uh, quite easy uh, because we have taken volatility out of the marketplace. When you move in one direction, uh, it's pretty easy then for people to assume that that direction will be continued forever. And again, we're at a different stage. I noted the last question that was asked uh, uh, by Lord Turner. Uh, we are at a different stage than uh, the previous speaker in terms of our management. But basically where we are right now, when I talk about efficacy, is that we have, with quantitative easing, uh, whether it is the total amount we have done or the amount that we uh, did before we embarked on the third leg of that quantitative easing, is we have enriched the balance sheets of the private sector. Uh, Kurodasan mentioned that the private sector was doing quite well in Japan, and it, I don't know if you gave the number of your speech, but if my memory is correct, roughly grew about 3% last year. We estimate at the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas that our private sector grew at about 4% last year, but held back by fiscal drag and by also a, a weaker external account so that our numbers were substandard in terms of total GDP growth. In essence, what we have done is we have enabled corporations to become muscular financially, to rebalance their balance sheet, and to be prepared uh, to create jobs. But they haven't done so yet. And the question is, what is the incentive that we're providing? We've driven down nominal rates to historic records for a short while, we had the lowest interest rates in 237 years of American history. They've come up somewhat, but nonetheless, they're still quite attractive. And we are seeing, in my opinion, some exhibitions of excessive risk, and I've spoken of these publicly. First of all, if you look at stock market capitalization relative to uh, overall GDP, if you look at the bull bear spread, if you look at margin accounts being now, at a, again, at a historic high, 
But most importantly, if you look at the credit markets, which is what in, I find to be the most important tool for us to assess the efficacy of what we do. And we see uh, extraordinarily low interest rates on a nominal basis, I mentioned, but other activity which raises at least one eyebrow, if not leads one to conclude that we might be stirring the waters a little bit too richly. And I'll point specifically in this instance to the spread between junk, triple C credits, uh, historically low or near historic lows, but most importantly on top of extremely low investment grade yields. So basically what we have done is by driving down yields to that extent, investment grade corporate yields have been lower than the S&P 500's forward earnings. Uh, and that provides an arbitrage incentive for corporations to issue bonds and then use the, the proceeds not to expand CapEx, particularly job-creating CapEx, but instead to buy back shares and, um, and to engineer their bottom lines on an earnings-per-share basis such that their stocks keep appreciating, including uh, dividend payouts. And this is not the original intention, although it's a understandable byproduct and a benefit of quantitative easing. At any rate, it has been the majority of the decision. In fact, it's been unanimous in the open market committee, both hawks and doves. A distinction I should add parenthetically, I don't like. Uh, pigeons uh, come from the same family as doves. None of us are pigeons. And uh, I like to think of ourselves as wise owls rather than hawks or doves. But uh, Obviously, unanimously, we took a decision three meetings ago to begin paring back the amount that we would buy. We've now gone from $85 billion a month in expanding our balance sheet in buying treasuries, of which we now own 40% of the stock of treasuries, 30% of the stock of mortgage-backed securities, and we're close to buying 100% of the gross issuance of mortgage-backed securities to $55 billion per month, and that is unanimously agreed to in the committee. The difficult part here is now the way we do, that we express our transition to anchoring the base rate and uh, how we basically provide the guidance of what we will do going forward. Now, I'm looking at my BlackBerry here because I had a, an interesting discussion with Paul Fisher about this yesterday of the Bank of England. And you may remember that uh, Mr. Chris Giles of the Financial Times had devoted a substantial amount of attention to the discussion of forward guidance. And in fact, he has, as you know, the Money Supply blog post, and here's the entry from October 2nd, 2013. And I'm quoting Chris Giles. Forget triggers, thresholds, knockouts, and long lists of conditions. Paul Fisher, the Bank of England's head of market, says, everyone is wrong to think forward guidance is complicated. The policy was summarized in a simple sentence of the Bank of England's explanatory document he said in a speech today. This is the sentence, and I'm quoting Giles, quoting Paul. Quote, in essence, the MPC judges that until the margin of slack within the economy has narrowed significantly, it will be appropriate to maintain the current exceptionally stimulative stance of monetary policy, provided that such an approach remains consistent with its primary objective of price stability and does not endanger financial stability. And then Giles goes on to write, apart from the grammar and superfluous words, I'm sure we can all do better than that. 
My translation, Giles' translation of the sentence would be, the MPC will let the recovery run for as long as it can, end of quote. And then he writes, I'm sure others will have better, more elegant, and more accurate sentences, all thoughts gratefully uh, retrieved and received here, and he gives his email address. And then later that day, he announced the winner of the contest on Twitter. Forward guidance in one sentence is, quote, we'll see. (laughs) Well, I think that's pretty accurate. We are all aiming for the same objective. And that is whether, again, it is the Bank of Japan or the Federal Reserve Bank of the United States or the Bank of England. We are all seeking to make sure that we have a sustained recovery. And we will conduct monetary policy accordingly. It is in the nature of anybody who follows economics, and particularly given the mathematization of economics as has occurred over time, and econometrics, and of course those that build models for profit or for academic interest, to want to have as much specificity as possible. But basically what we have done is we have dequantified our guidance and are seeking to provide qualitative indicators of how we might proceed. And I guess I would, as a member of the Open Market Committee, again, always only speaking for myself, ask for your forbearance on that front. Because by its very nature, qualitative guidance will be a little bit sloppy. People look to us for exact precision. I know Governor Kuroda, just as we do, uh, we all have models, we struggle with models, Models are built on history. Data is history. We're trying to move forward in unexplored territory. We've taken a revolutionary approach to monetary policy. We're not alone. We're all together in this. And what we're trying to do now is articulate to the best possibility we can uh, what happens after we finish our massive quantitative easing. You're at a different stage than we are. We are close to the end of that. If you do the numbers, uh, as Chairman Yellen said in her press conference the other day, It's pretty clear that by October, if we continue at this pace of reducing by $10 billion per meeting, then our large-scale asset purchases will be terminated. Then the question is liftoff. And by the way, I'm one of the dots. The dots were a singing group in the 1950s. I remember them very well. And I, I marvel at the obsession with the dots from our extrapolation exercise that we provide. And let me provide some clarity here because there were questions of her at that press conference. Each of us is asked to give a forecast under, quote, our assumptions about the conduct of monetary policy, end of quote, at year end each year. And what happened was, by virtue of the change of the composition of the voting structure, remember the presidents rotate their votes uh, into the committee, and I'm voting this year, Uh, we moved up by 25 basis points, the end of 2015 expectation. And uh, for 2016 and the longer term, by 50 basis points. And somehow this was read as a massive shift uh, in the expectations of the committee. These are our best guesses at best. Whether we refer to our models like Furbis, which is a great economic model, or the Dallas Fed's model or other models, Uh, These are expectations for year-end. I'm I'm fascinated by the fact there is a fixation, if not a fetish, on the dots. In fact, there is a market in dots. You may not know that. Uh, So this effort to 
be more transparent uh, complicates the business of qualitative forward guidance. And the reality is that you cannot quantify with specificity what's likely to happen several years hence. Nobody has that capacity. Not even Nostradamus would have been a good member of the Federal Open Market Committee. So that's where we are. We'll see. Deng Xiaoping had a apt description. We will cross the river by feeling the stones. We feel the stones with the bottom of our feet as central bankers. And I know that you demand, whether it's Governor Karuta, whether it's Mark Carney, or whether it's the Federal Reserve of the United States, as much specificity as you can because you want as much certainty as is possible. And we will endeavor to articulate that in the best way we possibly can. But you cannot expect specific quantitative guidance without mistakes being made. And then our reputation is put at risk because we issued a forecast that people find couldn't quite be lived up to because of the changes in conditions. So I want to come back basically to that uh, basic conclusion that was articulated by Mr. Giles in the FT based on Paul Fisher's comments. We'll see. Thank you very much. central banker by saying in the following the tradition of great central banking I would now be very happy to avoid answering any questions you have <laughs> thank you very much uh, before I open up the, the questioning to the floor I'm going to invite my colleague uh, Jean-Pierre Zicon uh, to uh, make a few comments on uh, uh, the remarks so far uh, Jean-Pierre is a co-director of uh, the Systemic Risk Center and a colleague of mine in the Department of Finance here at the London School of Economics. Thank you very much, Ron. It's a pleasure to react to the speech today. I'll be very brief and just uh, tell you a few things uh, that we have been thinking about. And I put my academic hat on because uh, we don't let a good crisis go to waste. We are happy about what is happening. We can test ideas, explore models, and so forth. And unfortunately, I will agree with most of what was said uh, today. So that's usually a bad a thing. Great because comment. I think that's one, I, I will be, I will be uh, uh, appearing to be unwilling to be critical, but I actually believe in much of what has been said, except, of course, we believe in modeling. So I believe uh, modeling is, is useful. So forward guidance in our models and the way it appears, it appears in, in, in a few shapes. First of all, I believe forward guidance at the zero lower bound, at the initial stages of a crisis, is absolutely the right thing to do. Because when a crisis comes, you have liquidity crisis, you have all these feedback loops, you have forced selling, and the more you have to sell, the more prices go down, and the more you have to sell, the balance sheets of financial institutions contract, and something has to come in to stop this feedback loop and to have public... Uh, balance sheets to counteract the disappearing private balance sheets. That's absolutely the right thing to do. At the same time, you have the unemployment numbers. Uh, you don't want, does not usually want cyclical unemployment to become um, permanent unemployment. So acting at this stage, lowering rates, providing liquidity, buying assets is exactly the right thing to do because that will cut through this bad feedback loop at the, starting, uh, at the start of, of a big crisis. Here, forward guidance is important because all these measures central banks have are very short-term measures. So if the market doesn't believe that the rates will stay low and the rates are very short rates, or if they don't believe that the buying will be permanent, then there will be absolutely no effect. But one has to cut these feedback loops that make the initial phase of a crisis much worse. And so forward guidance in this case is absolutely essential. Uh, 
it's like the painkiller after a drinking binge when the bowl was not taken away, I guess. Uh, on the other hand, providing these services and taking uncertainty out of the market, taking volatility out of the market, has longer-term implications. And on the longer-term side, there are again bad feedback loops that operate on a much longer horizon. So basically what I want to emphasize is that there are these short-term really bad loops and there are these really long-term bad loops, but you can't really see the long-term bad loops. They sort of built up under the surface and they are hard, hard to see. One of these loops that uh, for guidance brings about is the fact that rates are lower uh, for longer. This, of course, means that uh, there's less uncertainty, rates are low, people can borrow money easily, and... Uh, Asset prices will go up. Uh, asset prices are collateral values for other trades, so one has now more collateral, one can borrow even more money. The more money is in the system, one can, as market makers, iron out any fluctuations, so prices fluctuate less going forward also. That, again, means that risk is perceived to be lower. Basically, if one is risk uh, loving or risk uh, neutral, one would lever up up to the, you know, inversely proportional to the risk. So if value at risk is low, then one would lever up inverse of value at risk. So as the fluctuations are taken out, then the balance sheet uh, tends to grow because people take them as much risk as they can given the rates are so low and profit opportunities are big. Also on the quantity side, if the Fed buys lots of stuff, then credit uh, spreads will go down, uh, pricing is much less transparent, there are distortions in the market and things like that, and the true value of things is no longer quite apparent. You gave a few examples in your speech. I think they were spot on. And this reminds me of one of our old colleagues, no longer with us, uh, Hayek, who also was a professor here. And as that's pretty much the story. He sold the LSE when he came here. He wrote a dissertation as a PhD. Uh, Lionel Robbins was the head of the department. He loved the dissertation. He hired a guy just because of the dissertation. And that's basically his idea of this Austrian business cycle, um, uh, misallocation of capital in, uh, in a boom. So the other thing I want to say is too much uncertainty is bad because of the financial institutions tending to take too much risk. It's also bad in a business sense, I guess. So lots of people have argued that way. Pareto was the first one, Schumpeter the second one. If there's no uncertainty, there's no creation in some sense. One has to create new things, new ways of doing things. It needs some uncertainty. With no uncertainty, you, you, know, you can't invent anything new. And at the same time, we also have this, um, this idea of uh, Frank Knight, a Chicago economist, who basically said that the reason companies make profits is because of uncertainty. If everything is risky and everyone understands the way the, the economy works, competition would drive all profits to zero. So the reason there are profits is because not everything is understood, not everything is known, not everything can be contracted upon, and it's this uncertainty that creates profit and, and dynamism and so forth. And you alluded to that in your uh, speech as well, this entrepreneurial sense that uh, can come out of having a little bit of uncertainty to make room for improvements and so forth. So I want to finish here by just saying that basically there are these these, these feedback loops that work on the short end, forward guidance is absolutely the right thing to do. Having too much forward guidance will create the very long bad feedback loops. So there's this trade-off to have in mind all the time. It creates this time inconsistency that having no short-term loops creates these long-term loops, and at some stage the short-term moves into the long-term and something has to happen. And it's very difficult 
our models will not be of great guidance to understand when the time comes for one loop to become the longer-term loop, become more dangerous than now taking uh, the bowl away for the shorter-term loop. And I'm happy I'm not the person to take these decisions, and uh, um, I hope that you are able to take these right decisions. Thank may, you. may I make a quick comment? On, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. You mentioned a very important point. We have taken a great deal of volatility out of the market. I, I personally have no qualms about injecting a little more volatility to the marketplace, particularly now that we've bought time away from the most severe crisis imaginable, certainly since the Great Depression, and might even have been worse. So um, you do build in complacency, and I... When you build in that complacency and you maintain and uh, suppress rates, it's a natural instinct to drive people to take greater risk. So I, I agree with your point fully. And, and the fact that we, I, I expect, and this is my own personal expectation, we'll see greater volatility in the marketplace as long as it's not extreme or destabilizing. I think it's a healthy thing, not an unhealthy thing. I'm glad you mentioned that. Fine. Now, I think now we can uh, turn to the audience for, for questions. We have uh, one microphone down here. Do we have a microphone up there? Okay, fine. So, uh, Sushil, you were first out of the mark again. Uh, Sushil, good morning. Thank you. Uh, I just wanted to go back to the issue of, of the infamous dots, if I may. Uh, and... and, and, and uh, you know, at one level, I'm not at all surprised that the market fixates on them, although there's very little information in them. And it really goes back to the, the, the notion of Knightian uncertainty, which everyone in the markets understand. But as Keynes wrote a long time ago, in, when you have Knightian uncertainty, there is also there can be a tendency for herding and for people to sort of coalesce around something, some conventional view. And I think the dots do that for the market. So, so at one level, I'm not surprised that the dots appear to get disproportionate importance. Now, what surprises me is that, uh, of course, you're aware of the importance uh, that the dots get. And I guess what surprised me is that no one on the FOMC looked at them and sort of adjusted them uh, in, you know, in some shape or form to ensure that the right message was given. And if I may tell a story out of school, uh, when I was on the MPC many years ago at, at the Bank of England, we didn't, we, we didn't publish dots in terms of interest rate projections, but we did publish individual CPI projections. So you'd have the central committee view, and then you'd have members above or below. But the key safety feature we introduced was people were allowed to change their mind after the committee meeting mm. to ensure that the broad shape of the CPI distribution that was published was consistent with what the committee as a whole felt. And I had always sort of vaguely assumed that you did that. Uh, and I guess I learned on Wednesday that you don't do that, and that surprises me. Okay, I, I will try not to offend you in my answer. <laughs> I think, uh, first of all, I tried to make clear that these are projections made by 19 individuals when we have a full complement. We don't have a full complement now. We only have four governors, uh, with Janet as one of them. Uh, 
We also change the composition because the presidents rotate. Uh, but all the dots are there from everybody sitting at the table. Uh, I think it would be dishonest of us to adjust the dots because we have just discussed for two days uh, and come up with a statement. Those dots are submitted beforehand. We do and we can adjust them after the first day's discussion. I would say by the end of the first day, which is when each of us gives our review of economic conditions and uh, we hint at where we're likely to come out and policy, that there's plenty of leeway to adjust. You can't adjust those dots after the first day that evening. Um, the, the, the dot, or the plot of dots, that got the most tension, of course, was the forecast of Fed funds rates. And uh, since our last meeting, of course, the economy has improved. We've had some weather-related data and other data that may have been a step backwards, but on net, we've seen improvements. And I can easily, and I know, because um, I go through the exercise myself, I did adjust my own dots. But the overriding uh, document is really what we issue at the end of our discussion. And uh, we fully expected that there would be, I at least, again, I can only speak for myself, I fully expected that there would be a difference noted by the marketplace. Uh, but I think it's our duty over time to educate people as to what the dots actually are. And by the way, they're year-end, as I mentioned earlier. There's a lot of space between now and the year-end of 2015 for a 25 basis point move in the Fed funds rate. And they can also be adjusted over time. So I, I'm not accusing the MPC of dishonesty, but I, but I do... <laughs> I do think it would be inappropriate for us to say, oh, this is what we're going to say. Now we better go back and readjust the forecast that all of us worked so hard to put together. Again, the way this is constructed, you, you make the assumption, I am, if I were in charge of monetary policy, this would be the appropriate policy to pursue. And I say a prayer before every meeting, thank God I'm not in charge of monetary policy. Each of us. Uh, tries just to put together the best possible forecast we can. So that's the way it works. I, I, I know there's, again, this may be a reflection of what you were speaking about, JP, and the, you know, the kind of risk that people take to see a market actually develop in dot forecasting. Uh, may show you there's too much money running around the system. I'm not, I'm not quite sure. There's, I want to make sure somebody yeah, above in the heavens gets to ask. As long as well, it's a, a good question. Right. There's a, somebody up, way up there. Right. Thank you. Uh, Josh Ryan Collins from the New Economics Foundation, a think tank. Um, I wanted to uh, ask you about Governor Kuroda's uh, comment about this very explicit uh, w w way of combining monetary policy with fiscal policy. He basically said that QE worked in Japan because it's combined with a massive fiscal expansion. Um, and I wonder if you could let me know your thoughts on um, what happened in the US in terms of it, it initially you did have a similar kind of massive fiscal expansion with the, the monetary expansion. And obviously for political reasons that's 
been pulled back. Does that affect forward guidance um, and, uh, and, your, and your current thinking? And the related question, I suppose, is what are your thoughts on the UK and uh, EU experience of not combining uh, monetary policy and fiscal policy, i.e. having big monetary expansion accompanied by fiscal austerity? Thank you. Well, first, I don't think it's appropriate for me to comment on other countries or other groups' monetary policy. So let me restrict my comments to my own country. Uh, I don't represent the Bank of Japan or the ECB or anybody else or the uh, Bank of England. Um, we've had a, a disconnect between fiscal and monetary policy in the United States. We have been stepping on the accelerator full bore. Fiscal policy has been slamming on the brakes. So I would argue, and I have argued, and I'll give you a little demonstration of this in, in just a second. If I don't, please remind me. Um, where we've had drag has been put on the economy by the U.S. government. We estimate at the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas that last year fiscal drag cost us one full percent of growth. Uh, not unlike uh, what Kurtzman was saying about uh, the external accounts cost uh, perhaps two percent of growth, not private sector of three and the overall growth down to one. I think that's how I heard you. So uh, we seem to be working at opposite ends. Now, we've had some clarity there. Uh, we expect to see some lift, uh, particularly now that there is no longer a standoff on a budget and seems to be some willingness of the Congress to cooperate with the executive on that front. However, uh, if you talk to microeconomic operators, they will tell you that one of the inhibitors of their using the money that we have created towards job-creating capex is the matter of total uncertainty. Businesses make decisions under conditions of uncertainty, and uncertainty is good, actually, going back to your Schumpeterian comment. But total uncertainty is an inhibitor. So U.S. companies presently, even though there may be a budget, it's a short-term budget, we haven't had one for five years before that. They've had some clarity, but... They have no idea what their tax rates are going to be. They have no idea what the redistribution of federal spending will be, which is a, a big factor in our economic calculation. And they feel that the regulation authorities uh, have inhibited their ability to conduct commerce with certainty. Well, that then dissuades you from using the cheap and widely available money that the central bank has made possible. So I... I the example I will give you, and forgive me for doing this, because I don't ever base my dots or my economic uh, outlook for my country based on my own district, but I'll use my district as an example. I'm the 11th Federal Reserve District. And 96 to 98 percent of the output of my district is one state, the state of Texas. Uh, for 22 years, it has doubled the pace of job creation of the rest of the United States. By the way, in all four income quartiles not as the really foreign newspapers like the New York Times, for example, um, uh, or the San Francisco Chronicle would allege, is not low-income jobs in every single income category. And parenthetically, in the United States, the two middle-income quartiles have had job destruction, except for in the state of Texas, for the last 10 and a half years. That's a fundamental problem in the U.S. economy 
we would like to see addressed in terms of job creation. But there's a slight difference in that we do have state and local legislatures that do have an impact on the conduct of business and entrepreneurialism. And in the case of the state of Texas, whether they're Democrats or Republicans in our assembly or in the governor's mansion, it's always been pro-business, pro-job creation, less social services, et cetera. Just take that little differentiation and imagine if we had a fiscal authority, if we had a federal government that thought in the same mentality towards job creation, job creation, job creation, how do we incent the private sector to take the cheap and abundant money the central bank has made available and put it to work creating jobs? Uh, again, I won't comment on uh, Japan except for that Akrotasan and I spent a great deal of time uh, going back to the Birmingham summit talking about competition policy, et cetera. Uh, and um, we know that governments play an enormous role. We have to deal with our own inefficient, feckless federal government. Uh, my heart goes out to the European community because there are 18 governments they must deal with, and they don't have control over fiscal policy. Here's the bottom line. Monetary policy is uber necessary, but it's insufficient. And we need a third arrow, as is expressed in Abe economics, in the United States, and we don't have it. And as long as we don't have it, we will inhibit the efficacy of monetary policy. We know that. We take it into account in our discussions, how much fiscal drag, et cetera, how much inefficiency is built into the system by virtue of the specifics of fiscal policy. But we also realize there is a limit to what we can do. Uh, Chairman Bernanke would express it in much more polite terms as he did than I often do. But our massive monetary accommodation will not have the effect we would like it to have unless we have fiscal cooperation or complementarity. And uh, I see Kurodasan nodding his head, but I won't note that to the audience. <laughs> okay, thanks very much. Okay. Can I ask for a microphone for the gentleman in the striped shirt right in the middle, most difficult one for you to reach? Thank you very much for a very good speech. I've, the, um, the results of QE has left, as you mentioned, excess reserves at very large levels on the bank's balance sheet. And prior to the financial crisis, the, the Federal Reserve changed uh, paying from a zero balance to a 0.25% rate on excess reserves. This could be regarded by some as quite a political or quite an embarrassing decision to keep injecting liquidity into banks via a subsidy through the excess reserve pool. Given financial markets have now recovered, banks are in better shape, credit spreads are better, they can get access to capital better. Mm. Would the Federal Reserve look at the, uh, the 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 uh, interest rate on excess reserves and look at taking it back to zero, and if so, what do they see as the uh, what would you see as the effect of that? Well, first uh, you make a good point. It was politically inspired only because the Congress mandated that we pay interest on excess reserves. We did not before. Uh, second, I would argue that no banker in their right mind is happy earning twenty five one hundred to one percent per annum on their money. They'd prefer to lend it at four to six or whatever the rate might be. Uh, so I don't think they're holding it with us for the return. I know uh, that they're holding it with us because they don't feel they have sufficient demand for the amount of liquidity they, they have. 
And I don't think personally moving, it is a tool we can use, uh, particularly in the exit side, once we start, which I believe is quite out there in the future, moving the short-term base rate. I'm not going to put a time frame on it uh, because it'll be quite some time after we stop the LSAPs, the large-scale asset purchases. But I don't for a minute believe that banks are happy earning that return. And if we, uh, we would have to move it massively to have an impact on their behavior. And I don't think that would be well-received. Uh, I do want to make a comment on uh, the amount of reserves, though, and I think this is important for people to understand. Ultimately, we seek to normalize monetary policy. That's what forward guidance and exit strategies are all about. But I think it's important you understand that normalization today isn't the same as normalization was before. One of the things that will impact what we end up holding and what banks hold in reserves will be what comes out of the macroprudential side, out of Basel III and plus the additional twists and impositions we put on by virtue of Dodd-Frank, which is the key legislation in the United States, and then our own decision-making as to what is prudent. I would not expect the Federal Reserve's balance sheet to go back to the small size it was before. I cannot give you a number as to how far back it will go. But I expect that our balance sheet will be much larger than it was when we talk about normalizing. It doesn't mean returning to the past. Because banks will want to, because of leverage and liquidity ratios and so on, being imposed upon them to hold reserves. And uh, haven't done the numbers. I'm not quite sure what they are. But our balance sheet will still be quite substantial. What fraction of over $4 trillion I can give you, I can't. But I think that's an important thing for those that are thinking about financial stability in particular and the spirit of this conference to bear in mind. Okay, good. Next question. Um, question there on the left, my left. Uh, thank you very much. Can I just ask a question about your view of uh, trend growth? Um, in the United States. There's been some argument that with a decline in the growth of the working age population and lack of capex, and you mentioned the lack of a third arrow, whether the U.S. in the next decade is facing a materially lower trend growth rate, and what does that mean for a normalization of uh, Fed funds rate? Uh, what is the equilibrium real rate that uh, you're envisaging? Yeah. And um, just going back to the, just uh, on the dot debate, um, yeah, the, the thing about the market is you, you throw them a bone, they're going to go after it. Um, I know you say you, you enjoy seeing a little bit of volatility, but uh, if every three months there's going to be a 30 to 40 basis points move in, in euro dollars, uh, um, isn't it maybe a, a case of if the dots aren't offering that much value, then maybe just take them out and, and get everyone to focus on the statement. Um, maybe to cite another eminent Fisher, uh, Stanley Fisher, who said about forward guidance, um, don't give it. <laughs> By the way, I'm very happy that Stan's going to bolster the Fisher population of the uh, – he's a remarkably astute, brilliant, and seasoned central banker. So he's a huge addition. I can't wait for him to be confirmed. And, and I, I think one of the things – this is a personal view, but I, I hope that Stan will help play a major role there. I'm going to take off on your comment about Mr. Fisher. Um, our statements have gotten longer and longer. I believe they – rough calculation back in my brain – from about 250 words to over 900. Question, are we adding more clarity? Is more information better information? 
And my own view is that our statements have been like stalactites. They just keep extending. And I think we can do it better, and I, and I believe this is one of Janet Yellen's task with the assistance of Stan Fisher and other members of the committee uh, to express ourselves in a way that can be helpful but may shorten the expression. And then combined with the fact that uh, she conducts a press conference every quarter, we'll elucidate better. We'll see. That should be our objective. Uh, you asked me about uh, trend growth. There is a question of, uh, of course, the composition of our employment and the, uh, the consumption capacity of our workforce and what has changed there. And I frankly don't know and could not speculate at this juncture what a uh, Nehru would be, what a non-inflation-accelerating rate of unemployment would be. I suspect it's a little higher than it was before in part because of technological advances and in part because of the experience of the shock, particularly people of my age, baby boomers, uh, have decided to withdraw from the workforce. And then there are other factors at work that complicate the understanding of the dynamics of short-term versus longer-term employment, such as the health care legislation and how it's going to work its way through the system. Um, there are projects that believe that we can reachieve 4% growth. Personally, I'm not of that school. Uh, and I, I do think that uh, the threes are probably appropriate for the, for the United States looking forward. Again, this is a multiple of what's achievable in Japan. But again, different culture, different position, different timing. Um, and I think that is one aspect of trend growth is driven by the replacement uh, of the need for human capital with uh, technology. Just a comment on that. People forget that in 2008 we actually had an inflation scare before the legs were pulled out from under the table by Lehman. Uh, we had monthly numbers that were running as high as 8% per annum. And it was very interesting to see how microeconomic operators were adjusting their behavior. They weren't able to price what was going out the door as quickly as the price of the cost of what was coming in the door. And so they began to suppress their workforce. Labor is the most expensive part of an operating company. And they were already beginning to cut back and drive IT as aggressively as we had seen it to date. Then the legs were pulled out from under the table. Overall demand collapsed. You couldn't grow your top line at any rate, yet alone at the rate of what in the inflationary days were cost of what was coming through the door. And so you worked to preserve your margins, your bottom line, and you drove even harder cost containment, the cost of labor. Um, we've gone through a period of, an extended period of limited growth of top line. And managers adjust their mentality to budget to and manage to a goal. And they have been budgeting and managing to limited growth and margin expansion through cost containment and then some financial engineering. And I'm waiting for the shift to occur, and that shift will occur again when confidence is reinstilled in the future. And that would be helpful if the fiscal policies would assist us with that. 
So I do think that affects trend growth, and certainly in terms of the consumption capacity of our society, and we are a consumption-driven society, which is a function of how many people have the capacity to consume, which is a function of how many people have jobs. Uh, there's one other thing I would mention that is in our favor. We like to breed in the United States. Uh, we're still breeders. We're good at it. Uh, and unlike many European countries and other countries, uh, <laughs> we do breed and we grow. And I expect that to continue. Right. Um, we have a question. Young lady in the back there. Are there questions upstairs? Just raise hands so I'm not losing track of anybody. A couple there, one there. Okay, good. Yes. Hi, I'm Anna DeCosta from Reuters. Um, Governor, um, had Governor Yellen uh, mentioned considerable time before interest rate rise, and now you've mentioned quite some time before short-term rate rises. I'm just wondering what you guys mean by considerable and quite some time. <laughs> Uh, let me say it'll be the right time. <laughs> uh, Eric Beinhocker, Oxford University, uh, where the students still don't protest very much. Um, <laughs> Uh, you mentioned that corporate balance sheets are strong, interest rates are low. Uh, I would also add, you know, profits are pretty high. Corporations are sitting on lots of cash, but they're not investing at the rates one would necessarily uh, expect. In fact, investment has been relatively low. Mm. Are you seeing, and you mentioned that soft demand was a factor in that. Is there any connection, do you think, with rising inequality in the U.S., the stagnation of middle-class wages, hollowing out of the middle class? Are you seeing <clears throat> connections between inequality and the macroeconomic conditions? And then lastly, uh, any comments on Larry Summers' uh, secular stagnation hypothesis? Oh, I learned a long time ago not to comment on Larry. <laughs> uh, he, he's a friend. He, I, I'm an overseer of Harvard University, a trustee, and as you know, he was president of Harvard and he has a prodigious brain. That's the nice stuff that I will say. And that's it. <laughs> um, what was your question? <laughs> yeah, well, there was a touch on inequality in Ron's comments for uh, Kurodasan. Um, we have seen, a, as I mentioned earlier, a job destruction in the middle income categories. We do this wonderful calculation at the Dallas Fed where we take Texas out of the U.S. economy. Now, there's some politicians, as you know, that locally that would like to do that. It's not going to happen. But um, it, it is illustrative in that if you take Texas out of the rest of the economy, we have had job destruction in the middle-income quartiles. We've also seen a rotation out of those quartiles. Women have rotated into the upper-income quartile, and males have rotated into the lower-income quartile. That changes some of the distribution patterns of consumption. But um, this is one of my greatest personal concerns. And that is that, again, this is the fabric of any economy or the middle-income quartiles. I don't use the term class because I don't believe we're a class-driven society in America. And besides that, I'm the son of immigrants who had nothing. So we were able to achieve virtue of education. And yet we're seeing also a rotation of females into much greater college enrollment and males into less college enrollment. And that, that's part of the explanation of this rotating out of the middle-income categories in terms of gender. Um, but I think this is a major issue for the United States. Um, I don't think there's any doubt that quantitative easing enabled the rich and the quick. 
Um, it was a massive gift. Part of it was, and I want this carefully interpreted, it was deliberate in the sense that we were hoping to create a wealth effect. Uh, and you know the theory there. Certainly in the case of the housing market, we, I believe we were effective. And by the way, even though I'm a hawk, I supported the first initiative on housing. We needed to revive the American dream. Uh, and I think we succeeded significantly there, even with the recent setbacks. Uh, in terms of uh, Treasury purchases and the way uh, markets discount future cash flows and use the 10-year Treasury as their benchmark, um, I do think there was a more concentrated effect. And you see it in the kind of earnings that are announced by certain private equity groups and individuals and so on. And therein, I think, lies some political danger. And I shocked many of my colleagues by saying I understood the Occupy movement, and I also understand the End the Fed movement. Because one could argue, and the Bank of England has actually done a calculation on this, that it was the, 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 the distribution of the wealth effect was concentrated in about 40% of what they expected it to be, if my memory is correct. I don't know what the number is for us, but it was heavily concentrated. And uh, we don't work for the rich and the quick. We work for the American people. So that's been one of my bigger disappointments. Uh, and I hope that we do indeed succeed in being able to say in the end, the wealth effect was more evenly distributed. I doubt it. So this is an issue. Um, and, um, but it's not just an issue in the United States. I think it's an issue in all countries. It is natural. Again, those that are clever and those that are trained properly and so on can take advantage of are changing the rate at which one discounts future cash flows and then carry it to an extreme sometimes by virtue of taking enormous risk, which can then come back and bite you on the, on the backside. But I am concerned about income distribution in the United States, yes. And I think the efficacy of QE3 um, is still uh, to be debated in terms of its distribution. Good. I, we had... Questions up here? Who, is there still a microphone there, up there's there? There's a gentleman yep. up there. Oh, so you've uh, got the microphone. Right. Yeah. Uh, so last year when we were looking at, uh, we looked at Bernanke, uh, Governor Bernanke's uh, testimony to the Fed, to the Senate, and he very first mentioned the taper talk. After that, we were analyzing the summary of economic projections published since 2008. Now, if we look at the projections put out by the Fed and what actually happened, now there was a big gap in that, and there was significant undershoot in the economy. Now, if I look at this in the light of using forward guidance as a tool, where we are giving a state contingent guidance, does it actually add clarity to, to what, the, what is going to happen, or does it confuse the scenario even more? Hmm. Well, we'll see. Um, <laughs> but, I, but I do think one of the problems we had before, um, again, everything I say here is my personal opinion. Please, I don't speak for the committee. Although I think my colleagues would agree with me on this, and that we didn't take into account, and most central banks didn't take into account the credit markets to the extent we should have. In our case, unlike the European case, which is more bank-centric, in our case, we have to take into account the broad array of credit market participants. And as I said earlier, roughly 30 percent of our financial assets are in the hands of depository institutions, commercial banks as we know them or define them. So we have a, a very complex highly sophisticated capital market, credit markets in particular. And um, I, I want to remind you, we did not regulate Lehman Brothers. We did not regulate Bear Stearns. We did not regulate Merrill. 
And it fell upon us then to absorb these as a lender of last resort and do what Badgett had documented and goes back to the crisis of 1825 here in the UK, is we opened the floodgates. And we had to rescue almost every single market from interbank lending to the money market funds to uh, commercial paper, the most basic of financial instruments. So once you're burned, you don't sit on a hot stove twice. And we now take into account credit as part of our expectations. And developments in the credit markets and coming back to the purpose of this conference, the potential for financial instability and what the indicators might be. Are bubbles being built? Are they not? But um, whether or not we can properly articulate that as we go forward and provide through our forward guidance uh, a better uh, projection of our understanding of what's likely to occur. I, I would come back to this. Human nature does not change. And if you want to read one book that I think is the best single book you could ever read from the standpoint of understanding the kind of world that Kurodasan and Fisher-san and Yellen-san have to deal with, is go back and read McKay's great tome from 1841, Extraordinary Delusions and the Madness of Crowds. You'll see the same exhibition of behavior repeatedly through time. And that is that there are periods, someone mentioned herds, people do think in herds, and eventually the herd mentality overshoots, and then there is a correction. As much as we would like to do it as central bankers to prevent that, I don't believe we can, ultimately. We can mitigate it, but I doubt we can prevent human behavior from reasserting itself. And on that happy note, thank you for having me here. Because my human behavior tells me I have a dinner at 7 o'clock that I have to be doing. Thanks very much. Ulf, would you like to come up and say a few closing words, and then we'll... That'll be it. Thank you. Thank you. So we are about to close this conference, and I will give you a forward guidance that you can trust. But before doing that, I would like to, to thank all the speakers and participants in this conference who has made it such an exciting event, an interesting event. And um, I would like to thank the colleagues in uh, the organizing committee, John Danielson, Roman Frigg, Jean-Pierre Sigrand, for all the work they have put into this. And uh, the ones that are not so much seen, but are so important for, for making this happen. Uh, the staff of the Systemic Risk Center and of the CPNSS, uh, who have been absolutely essential. So, um, with that, I would like to invite you, and now with this come this forward guidance, to a drink to the left out when you get out from the this uh, well it's actually down here you understand that who are up there <laughs> to the left out there and um, enjoy it and have a very nice uh, friday evening and, and a nice weekend with, hopefully with family and friends and uh, have a nice dinner <laughs> thank you very much